for coming. My name is Alyssa James. I use she, her pronouns, and I will be moderating tonight's event with Brendan Tynes. We are both PhD candidates in the Department of Anthropology at Columbia University and co-hosts of the Black Feminist Anthropology podcast, Zora's Daughters. I'm speaking to you from Martinique, an island in the Caribbean originally inhabited by the Arawak and Kalinago peoples. We want to acknowledge that Columbia University is based in New York City, which is Lenape Oking, the homeland of the Lenape people. We honor all of the indigenous nations and their land with gratitude and acknowledge the genocide and continuous displacement of indigenous peoples. We also acknowledge the enslaved Africans whose labor built Martinique, Manhattan, and the New World at large. The harm inflicted upon these indigenous communities that reverberate to this day are irreparable. Nevertheless, we find joy in community and spaces such as these, where we can engage in the respectful and generous exchange of ideas. Generative, imaginative, and celebratory spaces are all the more important in moments like this, where we are experiencing the ongoing assault on the rights and freedoms of our ancestors and elders that they so bravely fought for. to Zora's Daughters Programming. We love a chat that is popping, right? So please introduce yourself in the chat. Please give us your name, your pronouns, where you are in the world, right? And this is mostly for me because, um, you know, I love astrology. So if you can share with us, like, if you know your sign, your big three, right? For example, I'm a Gemini sun. I am a Pisces moon and I'm also a Scorpio rising. So I got a lot of stuff going in my head and in my body, in my mind, a lot of stuff going on, right? And I would love to hear what you all have going on with your signs as well, right? And if you're feeling especially zesty, right, we want to know, right, how have you been keeping your peace as of late? Because as Alyssa said, right, there have just been so many things happening in this world and it's important for us to know that even in the midst of all of this right peace is possible and peace is here available to us as we continue right through this program we also want oh you're a gemini too hey wait what month one month before i celebrate may oh Oh, same day as Patty LaBelle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, I love that though. See, mm, that explains so much the music, everything. Ooh. So we have Alana, she, her, hers, who is a, let's see, Alana is from Tampa, Florida. Pisces, Sun, Scorpio, Moon, Rising Aries. Alana, I'm sure the people in your life love you deeply because you ride for them, honey. Have not met an Aries that didn't ride for people. Um, so yes, please continue to share in the chat. And as we discussed today, we want to hear from you, right? This is not the normal roundtable conversation where people are reading off of papers and we're just listening to scholars talk, right? This is about creating a community in which we can all celebrate the legacy of Zora together and engage from our perspective places in life, right? 
So we want to know your reactions, right? We have some really stellar scholars here to talk to us today. We want to know what resonates with you. We want to know what kind of discussions you would like for us to have. Um, and since this is a webinar, right, please submit your questions as we go. You can send them to me. Um, and we will read the questions during the Q&A period at the end of our time together. And finally, we would like to thank the Department of Anthropology and the Racial Justice Mini Grant Program for the funding to host this event. And the Racial Justice Mini Grant Program is funded through University Life and supported by the Institute for Religion, Culture, and Public Life. Great. Now, without further ado, let us introduce our wonderful panelists. So first we have Dr. Vishay J. Daniel Barnes, who is an sociocultural anthropologist whose specializations are at the intersection of Black feminist theories, work and family policy, and African diasporic, race, gendered, and class identity formation. She is an award-winning teacher and scholar, having won the 2017 Distinguished Book Award given by the American Sociological Association for her book, Raising the Race, Black Career Women Redefine Marriage, Motherhood, and Community. Dr. Barnes is currently Associate Professor of Anthropology in the African American Studies Program and the Center for Gender, Sexualities, and Women's Studies at the University of Florida, where she hopes to revive the Zora Neale Hurston Diaspora Studies Project, started by Black feminist anthropologist Irma McLaurin. So good to see you again. I love this. Um, it's mustard. Is this a mustard color? I love this. I mean, yes. Thank you. It's great to see you too, Brendan, and you too, Alyssa. Yes, lovely to see you again. Candace Hoyes is our second panelist today, and Candace is a vocalist, composer, archivist, and curator of a chill-inducing range, according to Vogue. Right, as she brings Black history into the present, and that is also from NPR. The prolific singer and songwriter draws upon jazz, soul, opera, and electronic music and is incited in Carnegie Hall's Afrofuturism timeline as part of their 2022-2023 curation. Born to Jamaican parents, whoop, whoop, Hoyes <laughs> gravitated toward music at an early age, influenced by jazz and soul, of the 70s and the 90s, operatic music and feminist icons found in her parents' record collection as a kid, she began pinning and performing her own interpretations of these gems. She's an alumna of Harvard, Columbia, and has done a couple of TED conferences. Wow, what can't you do? Um, her new album, Blue Lagoon Woman, is a bomb magazine editor's choice, stating in four tracks, Candace Hoyes' EP, Blue Lagoon Woman, leads us through the history of Black American music from 1920 to 1998. And you should know that while we all were kind of filing into this and figuring out our technical difficulties, right, we were also listening to a remix of her song, Zora's Moon, from that album. And that is the reason why we, we heard the song. We're like, yes, we have to have this kind of interplay between artists and scholars for this kind of event. So thank you, Candace, for your Thank pleasure. you. Thank you so much for being here. Next up, we have Dr. Kevin Kwashi, who teaches Black Cultural and Literary Studies and is a professor in the Department of English at Brown University. Primarily, he focuses on Black feminism, queer studies and aesthetics, especially poetics. 
He's the author or, and editor of four books, most recently, The Sovereignty of Quiet, Beyond Resistance in Black Culture, published in 2012, and Black Aliveness, or A Poetics of Being, published in 2021. Currently, he is thinking about a book of Black sentences and Black ideas. And of course, Zora, Zora Lover. And so we are very excited to have you here today. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. And thank you for opening with Zora's Moon. I love, love that song. Love the remix of it, too. So good to see you again. Mm. Good to see you. And last but certainly not least, we have Dr. Autumn Womack, who earned a PhD in English and Comparative Literature from Columbia University, which, yes, uh, her research and teaching interests are located at the intersection of late 19th and early 20th century African-American literary culture, visual studies, and print culture. Her first book, The Matter of Black Living, The Aesthetic Experiment of Racial Data, 1880 to 1930 was published just last month in April 2022. So congratulations. Um, we read a little bit of it to prepare for today. So, you know, it's already looking great. Uh, <laughs> and this book shows how African-American intellectuals and cultural producers used aesthetic experimentation to negotiate the intimate relationship between Black life and data regimes at the turn of the 20th century. Womack has been the recipient of numerous, numerous excuse me, awards and fellowships, including a postdoctoral fellowship at Rutgers University Department of English and a faculty fellowship at Penn State Center for the History of Information. Thank you so much, Dr. Womack, for joining us. So good to see you. Oh, someone wants the last book title. Are you able to unmute Dr. Womack? Oh, yes, sorry. Okay. Hi. <laughs> Great. Just wanted to make sure. Yeah, um, we're good. Thank you. Sorry. Okay. on on Zoom. Perfect. Okay, so we are going to get started. Of course, we're going to play Zora's Moon, and I'm going to share my screen so you all can see uh, the video. And then we'll get right into our questions, our conversation. Of course, that just gives no idea of all the things that have happened to Zora Neale Hurston no. in that time. She's had Guggenheim fellowships, and she's been elected to uh, Anthropological fellowships and what's that other one? Ethnological. Ethnological fellowships. Yes, folklore. Yes, and she's going around the country collecting the, the folklore and done a beautiful job. But all that will come out, I think, as we talk along. I, I, I was amused at so many of the stories in Dust Tracks on the Road. There was one thing you said about children that I love. Isn't it true that when we're little, we just think the world revolves around us. Yeah. Things are going to happen to other people. Bad things. They aren't going to happen to us. No, sir. And, and that thing you said about the moon. Oh. Well, I, uh, if you go outdoors tonight and the moon is up, you get to say the moon is in right now. But anyhow, after the moon is shining, you go out and you run, and it'll follow you. Mm -hmm. So it was a rain. 
Just had to make sure everyone. Oops. Ready again. All right. Just wanted to make sure everyone gets their credits where credit is due. Um, such a lovely song. I know that when I was a child, I definitely had ideas about the things that on, that only I experienced, and then realizing that other people. Uh, experience the same thing. It was like 
this that period of loss of innocence, which I think is which is what Zora is addressing um, in in her quote. But we will come to that in one of our later questions. So let us just jump right into it. Of course, in the abstract, the broader question that we are thinking about when we are curating this roundtable was about tending to the legacy of Black women with care. And so Candice, you said in an interview that you have, quote, one foot in the future and one foot in legacy when you are composing and creating, end quote. So could you please tell us about this song and what inspired your use of this particular excerpt of Zora Neale Hurston's interviews? And how does your song and really your entire album project, you know, become a place where you go your way? And while you're responding, I think it'll hopefully give others some time to think about um, the questions that, we, that we'd love to hear them speak to, which is what do you think Zora's principal legacy is and how has it influenced your disciplinary practice? Mm -hmm. And finally, where do you see possibilities for Black self-determination through Zora's work and your own? Oh, well, first I want to thank you. Uh, I love Zora's Daughters podcast and I'm grateful that it exists. So thank you, Brendan, and thank you for Alyssa for having me and to uh, be in community with all of you um, and these incredible scholars. Uh, I'm a lover of literature. <laughs> so uh, that's how I even found Zora as a teen. And I want to just give a shout out to Cynthia because I was I've never, I haven't felt such delight in, in some time as watching you embody the song through ASL, Cynthia, and I had to grab my phone and I, I, I don't want to forget that. It was just beautiful to me. I'm, I got very um, teary because um, the, the way, just to give you a little insight about going my way and the construction of the song and if, if it, if time and context allows, I'll share with you why it, why I came to write it. Well, I guess I will anyway, I'll, I'll go there. Um, so the song, uh, I wrote the song in 2017, uh, long before I released it, I started writing it. I, I am a, the first artist, I'm first generation American. Um, I'm the first artist in my family and I, my career as an artist hasn't been defined um, or guided by a particular mentor, uh, stage mom, or, you know, any sort of fairy godmother, so to speak, as we talk about Zora. Um, but I, I come from very loving family and uh, also who encouraged my love of books and music. Um, and I had to kind of find my way from there to what I'm doing now. And I, in 2017, I had a really beautiful career in many aspects, but I felt, um, I felt uh, constraints by the industry as far as uh, what I was allowed to do. Um, I had had my content, you know, taken, you know, misappropriated and. Mm -hmm many, many challenges that we face as artists and sometimes writers, thinkers, and, you know, I wanted to, I think, expand my territory, started writing my own work for myself. And uh, I went to the archives, which is where I go, especially when I need to heal myself. I go to biographies and 
look under the hood of, of works that I, I love. And uh, listening to this, uh, finding this interview in the Library of Congress archives, uh, this interview that I sampled of Zora Neale Hurston in 1946, talking on a, you know, free airwaves um, in this interracial conversation with a uh, white uh, self-described lesbian woman uh, who was the host of the show, Mary Margaret McBride, and a radio pioneer, and hearing her talk about this intimate story from Dust Tracks on a Road about her own life long before she was famous, but also citing her accolades in a way that I often don't walk into a room and do to list out, you know, these grants that I've won and also aspiring to win more and to go further. Those are all grants that I haven't actually won. I've won other ones, but those are things that I aspire to. So the, the video you just saw, I, made, I directed myself in June 2020. And part of the reason why I'm dancing with my own shadow is that sense of um, alienation that's uh, inherent in the artist's way uh, that I learned from studying Nietzsche and Cornel West and James Baldwin and looking at the life of Zora, I wanted to be forthright about it. And yet there's this sense of cosmic journeying that I get from Zora and that helped me to shape my territory. And uh, Zora's moon, I think, has been the the start of that in my career, another, like a rebirth of that. So that's my full answer <laughs> on that. Um, and the words, the lyrics, that why it was so emotional for me when I see people dancing, remixing, uh, well, I, I was part of the remix, but um, anytime anyone embodies the Zora's Moon song, it's very meaningful to me because in the tradition of Zora, I took the colloquial language that she used and I set that. I didn't really move syntax too much. I, in an homage to the way that Hurston used colloquialism and redefined literary, you know, technique. So I wanted to in kind of embed her, her own life, her own voice, and without, you know, really muddying it too much, just as a aspect of perpetuating that and also blasting it further into the cosmos. So it was f sort of for, you know, to like a sonic um, monument. Yeah, I think that is really, really beautiful, Candice, um, in a way to allow us to think about the ways that the metaphysical or the spiritual or the cosmic, the destined, right, actually plays into legacy into work into black self-determination um and i love how you say that hey talk about the archive being a healing space i work in the archive i know autumn kevin um and Rache also works in the archive like we all work in the archive and i know I've, i found it to be a healing space a space where i can see reflections of myself and my ancestors as well and so thank you for also calling that into this conversation with us. Um, but yes, I would like to hear from the rest of you. Who, what do you all think is Zora's principal legacy and how has it influenced your disciplinary practice, right? And where do you see possibilities for Black self-determination through Zora's work and then also through your own? And anyone can, you know, pipe up whenever you're ready. Um. 
I'll I'll um I'll go first. I um in part because this will make me um be brief because I know other people need to talk after me. Um I have so so much to say about Ms. Zora and her impact on my life um, and on my work. Um, I mean, I think, you know, obviously, first and foremost, as an anthropologist, um, I think one of the, she was, um, you know, sadly, the second anthropologist I was introduced to, the first being Janetta Cole, but they, they both have had such a tremendous impact on my life and work. Um, you all hear me talk about Janetta Cole all the time. Um, <laughs> so when we talk about legacies, uh, you know, just the connecting, the connections between the two of them, right? Being daughters of the South, daughters of Florida, um, you know, of true diasporic ethnographers um, who have really foregrounded, um, you know, uh, the, the diasporic connections, uh, the importance of looking at gender um, and, uh, you know, and talking back, right, to the discipline of anthropology. And um, I was remembering as I was listening to um, the song, um, which sadly, this is my first time hearing it. So I'm, I'm so happy to be introduced <laughs> to it. Um, I found it really beautiful and lovely and just embodying so much of, you know, what we, how we imagine. I mean, just, I mean, right. She had so many facets, but this is, you know, one we can really imagine and connect to in so many ways. Um, but I was remembering that my first uh, kind of, you know, serious anthropological ethnographic writing um, that got any attention was an essay, a humanistic essay that I wrote about being a native daughter, a native um, daughter of Zora Neale Hurston and of the South. And um, I, I, I tried to focus in on her importance to Native anthropology, what we what we have traditionally called Native anthropology, um, which for those of you who don't know is is basically um, you know anthropologists talking back to the discipline, um, you know those who have who have not uh, been uh, researched right researched properly um, from their own viewpoints. Um, it's those people in those identities uh, doing research on, the, on their own, right? Understanding their own communities, their own histories, their own cultural contributions. Um, and Zorano Hurston was, you know, one of the first, definitely the first, most of, you know, a lot of us knew of um, who did that work and um, and did it on Black folks, right, who um, were not, and especially Black folks in the South, right, who were not really um, being resented uh, well, um, if at all, um, uh, because anthropologists had been so 
concerned with doing research abroad, American anthropologists, um, and continue to be in many ways. So um, as a scholar who knew, even as an undergraduate, that I wanted to do work on the Black community in the United States, um, I looked to Zora Neale Hurston um, as someone who had, had done that and had had done it in a way that was recognizable for me as someone who had grown up in the South and who was a descendant of enslaved Africans in the United States on both sides of my family. Um, it was just a really deep connection. Um, and then having gone to Spelman as an undergraduate, um, being introduced to Alice Walker and Pearl Clegg and the way that they embrace being Black women of the South and writing richly about our experiences, embracing the fact that those experiences have not always been pleasant, most often not pleasant, but that there is, and I saw this in your video, um, joy, right? Joy um, is an act of resistance. Um, and, and that came through too, right, in reading about Zora Neale Hurston. I loved the, her self-determination and the way she constructed herself over and over again, <laughs> down to the, you know, we don't know exactly when she was born. Um, <laughs> um, so that, you know, as I said, there are so many things I could say, um, but I think I'll end with saying, when I got the opportunity to come to University of Florida, one of the things that I was most excited about was being in her home state and so close to Eatonville, which I had visited before. Um, uh, you know, earlier I've been to the Zora festivals and, and everything um, and, 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 and did a panel even with Irma McLaren one year uh, when I was early in my career uh, who, who started doing work as an anthropologist on Zora Neale Hurston um, many years ago and is still working on that project. Um, so I just saw it as a way to kind of come home. Um, even though I'm from Georgia, I just have always felt this connection. I definitely feel like North Georgia is more like South Florida, more, North Florida is more like South Georgia than it is like, uh, South Florida. <laughs> so I'm definitely um, just, you know, glad to be here in conversation with you all again um, and looking forward to engaging with everyone as we continue this conversation. I can pop in. Um, can you guys hear me okay? I feel like my voice is at the end of its rope. Um, May, it happens. Um, thank you, um, Candace. It's such a beautiful video. I'd seen it before, but it is really lovely to see it in relationship to the ASL and just in the context of the conversation, I think just animates um, different aspects of it. And, and you know, particularly the what Riche was drawing out about the um, the performance and kind of cinematic capture of joy that you also resonates with the sonic quality is really, really quite beautiful. Um, I'll be really brief or try to be brief in, in talking about Hurston's influence. 
to my own work. Um, and I thought about this question a bit because I was also like, I don't, where do you, how do you pin it down? And I think that's one of the fun um, generative things about how Hurston moves through and moves with all of our work is that it's just always kind of there, even if you can't necessarily pin it down, it's always at work. Um, but I think one of the things, and this might be a super, <laughs> super academic answer, but here we are. Um, I think one of the ways that I see you're really shaping is in kind of a methodological practice that also really structures, I think, the way that I approach the archive and the writing, which is to say, I, I see Hurston as always deriving theories from the practice of Black life that she lived and encountered. Um, so for me, that's a way of really in a 21st century and 20th century context, right, when I began writing about her is really, you know, letting the archive and the texts at hand determine the theories that I'm evoking, right? So I feel like for Hurston, like what she saw on camera or what she heard in her, you know, while she was living and working in the South, structured how she organized her writing, like the theory of angularity, like what she saw, how she saw Black folks moving, how their voices sounded, then became something that she gave theoretical voice to and characteristics. And then it also structured the text itself, like it's, you know, people write about how it's jagged and there's different indentations so that there's this dynamic interplay between Black living and Black writing and kind of theories of Blackness that I, I, I try to work with and think through um, as a way of drawing theories and, and methods and kind of really aesthetic writing style from, from archives, from Black living. So it's that kind of dynamic interplay that I think um, I find really always inspiring and always just kind of, I'm in all of it every time. I'm like, how do we, how did she, like how is angularity like a formal thing and a theoretical thing and a performative thing and a sonic thing? Like, and how did, you know, it's, so it's that kind of richness that I, I'm really drawn to. I could just listen to my colleagues talk all afternoon. I mean, I think um, I had the fortune um, Candace Hoyes, you um, you presented the song in the video at the NEH Institute on Hearst in the summer, um, and I was the faculty lead, and so I've heard you talk. Um, I would yield all of the space to just have you talk about the ways in which Hurston has been part of your um, artistic legacy. And indeed, as I heard you talk about like stories of theft and loss, right? The kind of disorientation that happened in, in industries or in institutional spaces. I certainly think of how Hurston herself struggled in navigating the structures for studying. Here was Hurston, this person who, as Professor Barnes was saying, right? Who just really had a generosity of being interested in black life and wanted to be amongst it as well as to study it. And I love the way in which um, Merche really highlighted um, Hurston's um, kind of field-breaking contribution and yet was alienated by the institutionality who um, was really deprived of the kind of support and resources that you should have had. And so I, I just, in hearing um, uh, 
both of you talk, I see already a residence of Hurston. And then uh, Professor Womack, just the last thing you said about Hurston's methodological practice, right? That um, I think that resonates so much with the place that I understand Hurston holding in my own scholarly life and my life in general, which is thinking about how she negotiated, negotiated ambivalence and a multiplicity. Maybe part of this is the self-determination that Roche talked about, the kind of complexity of the right to complexity of self that Hurston just assumed, regardless of if the world was willing to um, assert that for someone who was Black and female and from the, the American South. Um, so I'm, if I'm thinking with if I'm thinking with Hurston's How It Feels to Be Colored Me, if I'm thinking with her characteristics of Negro expressions, those are two iconic essays, or uh, Mules and Men, or the kind of three iconic biographies, Robert Hemingway's and uh, Deborah Plant's work, which is actually both a philosophical study and a biography, and Valerie Boyd's. I, I think about Hurston's ambivalence, where ambivalence isn't a negative thing. I think about Hurston gifting us the right to feel multiple about what it is to study Black life. And in that regard, I think about how Hurston navigated the tension of wanting to honor the past of Black cultural production, but also was determined to remind us that it's not past. It's still here. It's still evolving. I see that as part of what one could call a kind of critical, a practice of critical ambivalence. Hurston was excited about studying and gathering and recording, and she was also um, reluctant in what those practices meant because she knew that those practices of capture um, were, in fact, that they undermined the kind of vitality of the very uh, uh, expressive cultures that she was engaged in. Hurston was determined to protect Black folk material against the violences of white encroachment. And she also wanted to not have that anxiety about white encroachment shape every single way in which she understood the vitality of Black culture. Um, I am, it, it is her ambivalence, if we maybe put square, scare quotes around ambivalence, her capacity to, to want to stay with and be in the multiplicity and richness of the thing that I find really compelling. And like I said, I, in some ways, I'm mostly um, just drawing and summarizing from what um, Candace and Roche and Autumn have, have said so far. Um, yeah, that I, person's ambivalence, that's a place I go to often. Can I say something real quick about, <laughs> I love to, I love listening to you. Um, talk about things, Kevin. Um, so this is a treat for me um, to just the way you synthesize uh, things and and then build on them, right? So I'm I'm really excited about the way that you're using ambivalence, and and that it makes me think about um, the women that were in my study and how I talk about their ambivalence about their relationships to the black community, to motherhood, to career, to mm -hmm. even their mothers, right? And then having this sense of responsibility 
um, that is so so deeply entrenched in Black Southern womanhood, right? Um, and I and and so one of the things that you talked about um, when you were talking about how Hurston was so you know, she she kind of lived in this multiplicity and and did the thing of honor and the thing of recognizing. And I and I and I always appreciate the fact that she also critiqued, right? She also critiqued the black community, which was which was, you know, part of the the downfall of, you know, her relationship mm-hmm. to the uh the black literary, and I gonna use that. <laughs> I'm not going to use the word. <laughs> we can just say establishment. Yes, yes, the establishment. Yes, there we go. Um, you know, that was part of what made it so hard for them to, to appreciate, to, you know, they, they were ambivalent about her. She was ambivalent about them. Um, and, and, but also critical, right? And, and that is another thing that I love about her, that she loved she loved the blackness so deeply that she that she could also say, mm-hmm. we, you know, we are challenged by these things. I also love that she used, I think the the way that you talked about um, you know, that juxtaposition of being uh, of, you know, kind of, you know, saying we're not gonna, we're not gonna be. Um, encroached upon by whiteness, but we also, but but there's this flip side too of 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 having to to navigate it right in some ways that means that we are being encroached upon and um, and and her her use of that too right it's so complicated especially for us as as ethnographers and anthropologists that her her use of um, of of white um, uh, white philanthropists, um, mm. uh, the complexity of you know of of having to often you know report on what they were asking for so that she could get to the stuff that she wanted to do. Um, there's just so much there in what you just said and, and the way that ambivalence just kind of, I mean, I, I totally agree with you in that ambivalence could be the way that you could always come back to Zora Neale Hurston over and over again. Even as we even as we think of her in the contemporary moment, I'm thinking about one of the questions that Alyssa and Brendan have brought to us in terms of like the creation of a public image mm-hmm. um, and how she has no control over that how she's been captured by different people and groups and disciplines and her likeness is, you know, all over the place um, now, which is again, good and bad, right? Ambivalence. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll stop there. Um, I didn't want to jump ahead. I saw someone had their hand up. So I wanted to make sure to leave space for that before I give a comment. Candace, did you have your hand up? Or? I was trying to throw a heart up during some of those things. Oh. That didn't work out for me. So then I put my hand down. Because <laughs> I agree so much with with uh, everything that was said. Uh, I I can just say as a case, as a as an object lesson in 
living with Zora and loving Zora. Um, the reason I, I called upon Zora in uh, a couple years ago when I wrote that song was I was so angry that I kind of wanted to leave the industry. Um, and then I realized when my idea was taken for this by this uh, presenter, I was I created a program that um, well, I'll just give you this example of her of her um, of her reach. And uh, uh, so her magical reach uh, in my life as an artist. And uh, so I created a program. It was about and I did it at Bard. It was quite well loved and critiqued, you know, said it was a knockout or something like that. I was a knockout. That's what it said. So uh, then the impresario of the festival, I think it was very much driven by my idea and my presence. And that caused a conflict. Uh, and um, a pro the program itself was about how jazz came to Paris. And so I, it was in French and English, and I was singing in French and in English. And he said that I wasn't French enough. And he replaced me in my own program with a white French woman. And at first, it was so devastating because I had worked so hard and I, I felt so closely identified with this story because it's my history. <laughs> and it's also my present in defining what my work is like and having it reflect my 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 very most intimate experience of moving into spaces as a black woman and doing my my music and i thought why why always the temptation to steal this from me and rob me of it when i'm willingly opening my life to the world mm. and um Oof, it's hard. I don't even, mm. but thank you. I thank you for having this podcast because how, who are, who would I talk about this with except for y'all? So I went to Zora. I went to Dr. Cheryl Wall, rest in peace and power to mm. Dr. Cheryl Wall, who mm. lifted me up with her scholarship on that day. And I was reading about Godmother and how she paid Zora for her research in um, Beaufort, South Carolina with a car and a camera but retained ownership of the work itself, the research itself. And I said, my God, this is a, then my mind went to the Zorro place of like getting out of the construct of time and generational context. And I said, this is, this is, I need to engage in that. This, this one little character who's trying to take this and that, it's reductive. If he puts a white woman where I was standing it's reductive already. So my work remains untouched. Mm -hmm. And so it is very much, um, but the ambivalence was my, the way that the external world was affecting me, the commodification and white privilege and just the way I, I, it's like Zora, I, it's my livelihood. And like all of you scholars writing about these things that white people don't want to hear and don't want to remember, um, or learn, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's very much, uh, active in my day to day. Mm -hmm. And sometimes some wonderful things happen such that this song came out, you know, two years ago and here I am with you talking about one song, but I can tell you this, I knew exactly what I was doing when I made the song. Um, I knew that the song had layers in, in it and facets 
And in the same way that Azora work does, I, I aspired to that in my piece. And I made a video during the pandemic, right during the protests, which was, you know, with the pandemic and no income. And I, I made that on like about $700 total. Mm -hmm. But as she was the first non-silent filmmaker, black woman in 1928, it was very important that I documented, expressed my film through that um, medium, or maybe my song rather, through the medium of film, or at least aspire to it. Um, and the moon thing, obviously, is this, it's this reaching. So we're all reaching. I don't worry about too much um, being reductive in my reference to her. Actually, I mean, my story goes back further. My college, I was a sociology major, African-American studies minor. I was Evelyn, Dr. Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham, the um, important historian who influenced me greatly. Um, my first anthology of black women's history was hers. I was her research assistant in college. And my thesis was interviewing uh, black girls age 13 to 15 in area four in Cambridge. Um, uh, about images of body and sexuality. So I've always been interested without knowing why in those methods and um, they're Zora methods for me. So all of that's to say, I was trying to put a heart on the-, on the... <laughs> Yes, thank you so much for sharing um, just all of that and allowing us to learn more about the context of the video and the context of the song and also um you know you know you got something good when people be trying to steal it then you know they try to replace you but your work your voice your presence is irreplaceable right um and that is something that i hope you feel affirmed in every day i wanted to kind of think with what you all have shared thus far about Zora, her legacy, um, and kind of tie together some threads that I've been thinking too in my own work, um, thinking about how we use images of Black women, especially our, those that have been, you know, that are deceased, right? How do we think about them? How do we carry their legacy? How do we, um, how do we talk about them? Um, and I think, in my opinion, right, that Zora actually embodies something um, or the memory of her, right? Her legacy actually embodies something that I think some Black people actually really desire, which is this kind of visibility, right? This kind of like touch to money. We talked about those white philanthropists, that money, right? This access to institutions and things, this kind of visibility, right? That actually comes with a sense of opaqueness, right? We actually, as Rishay said, right? We don't really know when Zora was born, but I believe that she was a Capricorn queen, which is part of her approach to this opaqueness, right? If you know any Capricorns, you know it's very hard to know them truly. Um, but I like what you said, uh, Dr. Kwashi, about this kind of this right of complexity of self, right? So Zora kind of models this, but I think for a lot of Black people, we find that to be impossible, right? We, we kind of have a the thing about living as a black person, right, is there's this, this sense that people know you, right? There's this sense that this, the person, the impresario, I think you said, right? Oh, we know you, we know your work, you're just not good enough, so we're gonna replace you, right? 
And that's only possible because you are a black woman. Right. If you were if you were, I would argue if you were a black cis man, people would see you as someone who is not replaceable in that place. Not to mention not uh, that that is exactly right. And also the very point I was making was about crossing borders. This is not about just me. This is Josephine Baker did that. I mean, it, Eartha Kitt did that. Uh, any any that I understood that he his agenda is just and I think that was why Zora always if I had to when I glean inspiration, I think she always was re-entering even when the relationships and the money was thin. Um, and many artists that 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 inspire me, Billie Holiday, I could speak many names, Josephine Baker, as I just said, um, is that you know that there are there those people, their agenda is different than mine. So of course they're not gonna. That's why I have. That's why I'm. It, we're just distinct and. Once I, but at the same time, how powerful to convene this way, and and I wanted to put something farther out. Way, to me, sound and music is beyond any presenter or institution or any of these things that we spend time in. But we're, you know, we're not of them. We're of something more cosmic than this. We're just these are just places we pass through. This this togetherness of us is what's eternal. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, yeah, so, but of course, you know, we're not meant to just be these impenetrable things, the tenderness of it. That's why I did want to dance and sk skate with my shadow and be apart from the procession in that video, because there is a, it's, um, it's a tender negotiation, I think, especially the closer you, you know, it comes to being an artist it, it it's i wonder that about her about how it felt for her you know yeah and i think thank you for saying that because i think that also kind of leads me to to my next i don't know what to call it comment provocation whatever whatever um but i do think that because she she was a black woman right it kind of lends us a claim to an interiority as people who read her people who love her, right? We can we can say, yes, we know that she experienced an ambivalence, right? And we can see that as evidenced by the letters that she left behind, like the works that she wrote for us, right? The conversations that she had with folks that were documented. But there's still this sense that she is unknowable, right? There's still this sense that Zora is kind of one who floats around, um, which again, I, I attribute to, you know, Capricorn queenness um, and this kind of... Um, way that Capricorns tend to escape being known. But I wonder for all of you, right, as you think about your work, um, and I want to sit with the term that Dr. Kwashi gave to us, right, this kind of critical ambivalence, which I think, I think Zora modeled that for us very well. Um, I wonder, I wonder as we move towards a time that is much more urgent and thinking about Black self-determination and Black liberation and Black life, right, um, and embracing those things. How we as scholars, we as children of Zara's, right, can, can think about this tension or this critical ambivalence in our own work. Um, so if you all would like to 
speak on your work and how that kind of shows up for you. If it shows up for you, right? Do you even see yourself speaking to white audiences? I'm thinking about Candace, your comment. Um, I don't see myself writing to white people, right? When I write, it's, I mean, yep. if they read it, they read it like, I don't, that's on them, right? But my work is for black women and girls. My work is for black queer and trans people. Right? It's for black liberation. Um, and I'm not concerned about whether white people want to get on board with that or not, because I know if they do, that means, well, honestly, to me, that's the end of, of their power and privilege, right? So most white people won't be on board for that. Um, but I see Zora as a, as a figure who thinks about her presence in the world as kind of this political presence, right, in, in some ways. Um, but I just would love to hear about you all and your own work and thinking with tension or critical ambivalence within your own work. I think that the part of the 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 story that I captured through her own voice uh, that she was, you know, retelling from Dust Tracks on a Road uh, when she was about seven because it was like chapter four that she writes that story um, and she must have been about seven because it's before she talks about dreaming on the porch and having this sense from beyond of what tribulations will come later in her life it's the most it's from the more innocent time before the fractures in her family and i imagine um and I think also growing up for myself with Jamaican parents where there was always a reference of a more Afrocentric place um, from their, you know, their consciousness and imagination that lived inside of our house that wasn't the nation that we were living in for me. Um, I think about Eatonville and I think about how she was able to dream that dream because she was somewhat uh you know in some context a set apart um from the white gaze in this utopic city and i even wonder what was that like you know even if you go to eatonville now it's not what it what that was for her and especially at seven and i think also being a mom uh my my 10 year old daughter is right here doing her homework i think a lot about the power of imagination and like that particular time and even uh, Brendane, like I was thinking, like uh, you're a PhD student now with the vision that you have for yourself. I remember myself when I was an undergraduate when I first got to a you know college campus, and I I think that it was for me it was a, quite a salve that I had this Black Women's History seminar that was like a sister circle. You know, I didn't go to Spelman, uh, great Spelman. You know, it's like where can we think these thoughts and where can we get to the point where we're some kind of, you know, wonderful PhD who can, it's that, it's those vulnerable times that I worry about, you know, um, as we're all talking about with the Supreme Court, um, the activity in the Supreme Court, um, you know, impeding on our, our bodily, you know, wellness and, and self-determination. Uh, these these, these uh, earlier times, I would like to stay connected to those. Um, yeah, I, I, I do think I write, uh, I do write for black people. I'm aware that I often work in white places and spaces. So 
there's that. And like Zora, I want to work for my whole life as an artist. So, yeah, I do. I do go back to those uh, girlhood imaginings, though, to make sure that I keep a fullness to my work. I love that groundedness um, in girlhood. Um, I have something else to say, but I'm not going to let the two Gemini's talk because we will talk the entire time. I um, would love to hear from you all. What, do, what are you thinking uh, about the critical ambivalence or tensions in your own work, um, your audiences, communities that you may see yourself accountable to? Who can who can call up Dr. Womack, Dr. Kwashi, Dr. We should be like, hey, um, something you wrote. It's got me feeling some kind of way. Um, I would love to hear that. I mean, I, you caught me at probably the wrong time to answer this question because I'm finishing my tenure file <laughs> doing like a week. So there's, you know, so it's like, you know, you can't tune everybody out that you want to. Um, but I think that, you know, it's interesting. I think about this question, um, and I, I'm grateful for the the phrase critical ambivalence. I think it's it's so spot on and it it captures so much. Um, I thought of it when you first mentioned it um, in relation to that last line of um, how it feels to be colored me when she's like, who knows? And it's like really like an open like I, I take that really seriously as an open question and kind of um, an articulation of that ambivalence, but maybe. But you know, I think about this a lot because. Um, most of us in the on this, at least who are spotlighted, like have an institutional home, right? And are, so are somehow and in some way committed, ambivalently or not, to the idea of the institution, um, even as we re always realize its limits and what it can't afford, and actually that it's its narrow vision is precisely what allows us to kind of imagine and think in the way that we do, right? But there is, we, we all still are doing it, right? Um, so that is something that I often, I spend a lot of time thinking about um, and I don't have an answer to it, but just that I think that that's kind of the major embodiment of that. Maybe that's the, 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 the site of the critical ambivalence, right? Um, even in my classrooms, as I'm always like, you know, really inviting students to interrogate their own expectations and affiliations and desires for what the university will afford them. We're all still there in that space, right? We're not, like, this is not, you know, Fred Moten and Stefan O'Harney's undercommons, right? Like, we are in the classroom at Princeton, in my case. Um, but, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I have more to say, um, on it than that, but just that I, I do think it's it's just, I, maybe it's just an unanswerable question and maybe the answer is like, who knows? And maybe that who knows is just what we keep kind of moving with and thinking through. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there. I think um, something that Brendan said a little while ago about, and I can't remember what you said, it, it was, in relation to, but it jumped out at me and it was, you said good, you said something about good enough. And I don't remember, do you remember what you were saying about that? Um, nope, mm -mm, I understand. <laughs> um, but I think, uh, I think the space of my critical ambivalence and how it affects 
my work is in this notion of good enough, right? Of, um, and it's not, I don't, I don't want to evoke, um, what's the popular phrasing now? Um, um, uh, oh goodness. I hear young people say it all the time. Um, imposter syndrome. I'm not invoking young people talk about. (laughs) Uh, Well, when I say young people, uh, young in relation to me. (laughs) Um, But uh, yeah, I don't mean to, I I don't mean it that way. I mean, actual, actual good, actual good enough. Um, And I mean it in the sense of the ways in which our communities, um, our internal, right, uh, internal to the Black community and external, um, often are are making us, particularly um, Black women um, and and Black femmes, um, feel like we're not good enough in lots of different ways. And there's always this, uh, you know, there's this, and I, and, I, and I would see it and I think look to Zora Neale Hurston for some ways to navigate it because there's this, there's this, I need to, and you just talked about it too, Candace. there's this need to, you must do the thing that you were put here to do, you must. Um, but you will, but you will encounter feelings of not good enough at that thing that you were put here to do. And there is this, this space of needing to shut out that noise while also having to be responsive to it in some ways, right? To, to, to present as if good enough, be good enough, but also be in resistance to the idea that one needs to be good enough. <laughs> um, and I mean, I think even what you just said, Autumn, when you started of needing to, you know, this might not be the best time to talk to me about this because I just turned in this file that is going to determine whether or not I am good enough. Um, not that I want to put those words in your mouth because you might not be navigating that, but um it's, I do think that it's something that, um, that comes up for us, if we're being honest, and puts us in a position of, of ambivalence, of, of needing to shut that out, but also knowing that you're constantly taking it in, no matter what you want to, no matter how much you don't want to. Um, and I've been thinking a lot since you all invited us to this space about, about Valerie Boyd, and um, and the fact that she wrote this beautiful work um, and, and pretty much dedicated her life to uh, really not only uncovering the life of Zorno Hurston, but also creating, I think, the spaces that she felt Zorno Hurston would have wanted and benefited from and wanted to share with other young writers, if she had had the opportunity um, and been seen as good enough to 
continue her studies, to finish her PhD, to be in the academy if she wanted to be, um, and continue to do her work without feeling as if, you know, at any moment the rug could be ripped from under her um, for completing the work. She was always trying to get more money to do her work, to do the thing that she was put on this earth to do. And, and, at, and at every turn, there was somebody from, from our communities, from, from those communities outside our own saying, nope, you gotta do it this way or you gotta do it this way, or you've gotta talk about it in this way, or you've gotta present it in this way. Um, and I just, I just think about that, um, you know, how we, we're, still, we're still dealing with all of that and how, and how much of us are taking it back to Valerie Boyd, how much of a toll it takes on our bodies, on our systems, on our mental health, on our spirits. Brendan, I'm so glad that you have been talking about spirit and, and signs. And, you know, there was a time in my life when I would have been like, what is this girl talking about? <laughs> um, because we were, we're, we're, we respected as scholars to separate ourselves from that, that spiritual connection. Um, that is so necessary. And, um, and so, yeah, I feel like now I'm rambling and I'm gonna stop there. I totally agree. I'm so glad you said that too, Brandon. I like that you say it because it, 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 it reminds me of the wondering. I mean, there's, there's a wondering that is why we started writing all of us, right? So I love it. So true, Candace, because I started as a young person, not planning to be an anthropologist because I didn't know what it was, um, but to, but I was, but I wanted to be a writer. I was, I was a creative. And I think that there are so many ways in which this voice of not being good enough works to stifle creativity as well. I think the other thing that that reminds me of and um, is like the, the not good enough, I think is also actually, um, or can also be a question of um, this like asymmetry or disconnect between what your idea is and the language that you're writing in and kind of the, and it's so-called illegibility, right, to an outside public, right? So I think like that's, that's the tension. I think like that's, that's like the Hurston of it all, right? Like, how do I, how do I, or do I care if my work is intelligible to the folks that yeah. are actually seemingly valuing it or paying for it, right? Like, yeah. um, do, do, am I actually interested in that and how do I negotiate that? So I feel like that question of translatability or non-translatability or kind of the rupture between what you think the writing should be and then actually what it looks like on the page is actually this thing that you're talking about, Brenda. Also, when you say like, I'm not writing for a white audience, like it's less about like, I don't want white people to read my book and more about like, I'm not actually interested or maybe or not, but this is how I think about it. Like I'm, it's, 
it's about it's about reconciling the fact that the terms in which I'm thinking about blackness and aesthetics and all of these things might not actually be the language that people are expecting or wanting or can make sense of. Um, and I think that that's a, a really you know important way to think about kind of the not the not good enough too is a, a not seemingly not in, intelligible enough. Mm. Yeah, and I think. Oh, I'm so sorry. Am I interrupting you? No, no, go ahead. I was going to say, um, yeah, I'm thinking with all of these different kind of, in my head, it's like these three different kind of stars or poles or, or whatever that you all have been um, talking about and thinking about this kind of translatability and intelligibility, um, but also this kind of this tension with interiority, right? Uh, and so in particular, thinking about how as black people, right? There is this demand that we must be known in some way, right? And that knowing is connected to surveilling our bodies, right? It's connected to controlling us, right? Um, and how we as black scholars, as black artists, as black people move through this world and think about how we resist that and maybe critical ambivalence is a way for us to be, to sit with our own interiority and think about all these different things. Um, and hmm, what was I going to say to that? I think I think I'm really I'm sitting with your comment, um, Autumn, in particular, thinking about yeah the relationship to the academy and how the academy also has this demand of us to be known, right? Like we must be known, we must expose. Even in your tenure file, right? You have to detail how you're a teacher, why you teach, the way you do things like that. I mean, I, that's what I read up on it when I was trying to figure out if this is the path for me, right? Um, <laughs> and so, um, and I think I think about how we are put in these social positions where that's kind of like, I don't know, we're pushed to do that. And I see Zora as a model of kind of sitting or jumping between the two of here, I'm gonna maintain this kind of privacy or I'm gonna tell you something about somebody else, right? I'm gonna write about hoodoo practices but I'm not gonna tell you about how I participate in hoodoo, right? I'm just gonna write a couple sentences saying I did a ceremony, but that's the extent of how you know about me um, and my involvement in it. Or I'm gonna tell you I had a conversation with someone in Eatonsville, but I'm not gonna tell you the ins and outs of that. I'm just gonna tell you how it felt to be in conversation with them. And I see that kind of, um, I see that as as a method, as you talked about earlier, Autumn, like this kind of like method of doing black work in the academy that allows for us to retain some kind of autonomy without having to be subjected to the violence, really, of white supremacy that requires us to always be objects of observation. Um, so that's it. That's all I'm going to say. I'm going to pass it on to you, Dr. Quash. <laughs> mm, mm. um, I'm thinking back, uh, Candace. Uh, I know people said this in the chat. I just want to say um, thank you for sharing that um, difficult and terrible story. And shout out to your to your young person doing homework right next to you. Um, one of the things I maybe I want to make sure. I think everyone, in, as people have talked about ambivalence, I want to make sure that ambivalence is not ambiguity, right? The ambivalence in in its it, 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 as, as clearly as I understand it denotatively means at least two registers. 
right? And and so I think just to, to be clear, because I think sometimes I I don't feel as if it's been misheard here, but I want to be clear that ambivalence is not ambiguity. And so Candace, as you were telling that a really difficult story, and Brendan, you engaged and responded to Candace. One of the things I loved and heard is Candace, you returned to the idea of um, the cosmicness of your art. And there was this way in which um, between you and Brendan, I, I at least heard this sense of something that I think of as very Herstonian, which is what does it mean to try to pursue and achieve or describe or create or enact or theorize the universal through the particularity of a black female subject, black female thinker, black female artist. And I want to be clear, this is not the universal as in that terminology that would to so define being that it excludes most people from being and, and destroys the capacity that most people have to actually be. I mean, that sense of the way in which, Candace, I hear you using the moon, making gesture to Hurston's own sense of the cosmic, and Hurston's essays, especially an essay like How It Feels to Be Colored Me, really is asking, what does it mean for me to think and study the ideas of being alive and the ideas of the world through my meanness. It's very Sula from Morrison's work, very Audre Lorde, especially if you think of Lorde in the Cancer Journals, uh, very Lucille Clifton, if you think of Clifton's uh, poetic inhabitants. And so I really, there is something about that, about Hurston's investment in um, a universality through the particularity of Black femaleness. And it was, and, and in some ways, Brendan, I, one of the things, it, it becomes unsustainable because that, that anthology title tells us all the women are white, all the Blacks are men, but some of us are brave. So that there's a way in which Black, black women thinkers, I, I, I hope people notice, I, I'm, I'm reluctant ever to talk about any people because like, I don't want to say there's a way in which Black women, because to say that for me, there's nothing that could be said about Black women, because Black, each Black woman in and of themselves is a world unknowable unto themselves. And so part of the tension, Brendan, that I love that you're reminding us of is the way in which to even talk about um, some of these ideas sometimes puts us in the puts us in the discursive bind of making a thing object. So there are ways in which I think some black women thinkers and artists, right? So here I'm talking about their practice and their ideas and their expressive and philosophical contributions really are trying to figure out how to say, well, we get to also think these ideas through the particularities of what we know, understand, experience, perceive in the world. And I, um, I think that's part of, part of the legacy of Hurston. And I love the exchange, the way in which Brendan and other people too, but Brendan, as you were engaging Candace, that there was this way in which this thing became clear. And maybe one other quick thing um, I would say, there was also a moment of hearing Roche in your response to Candace, reminding us that in a way, Hurston would say, what is your work? 
How do you do your work? And so the question of audience, uh, Autumn, you've just glossed beautifully, right? The ways in which many of us, especially in the academy, but many of us in the world are always navigating between spaces of hostility and maybe spaces of decent neutrality, right? And, um, and what, we, what we need is the cosmic vision of as much as possible, coming back to the compass that says, what is my work? How can I get to doing it and doing it as well and as kindly and as ethically as possible? And um, at least when I read Herson, that's what I sense Herson trying to do, um, that, that sense of trying to figure out how do I study and record and present and think with and argue with these histories, these expressive practices in the way that I think is best to do it. It may not be the best way, but in the way that I think is best to do it. Um, and again, uh, you know, I'm gonna repeat myself, just listening to you all, my colleagues talk and think is really, I, I, would, I would just stay here, mic muted, um, and just be, be grateful for this continuation of this exchange of ideas. Truly, I am just, I'm also just sitting here being like, oh yes, oh, I should probably say something, but I'm so interested. Um, I think I'm, I'm gonna be thinking about some of the things that we've talked about for, for definitely a few days, if not a long time. Um, Candice just posted this, just um, asked this really interesting question. Um, how do each of you ascribed to a department engage with the label so often ascribed to Hurston as interdisciplinary? Does that label work well for you? And she's, she's thinking with, with this um, ambivalence as well. And yes, I will, I, will, I will leave it open and see what you all think. Um, I love that question. Thank you so much. It's, it's so good. Um, I want to like teach with this question all the time now. Um, the first thing that popped into my mind is, um, and maybe this is the first time it's coming to me, interdisciplinarity has always like bugged me, even though I use it to describe, I'm like, I'm organically interdisciplinary, like, you know, um, but I think it's because, and this just occurred to me, so thank you again for the question. It still like codifies the disciplines, right? It still it relies upon the idea that the disciplines are these discrete, um, circumscribed entities that are housed in different departments and that the innovation comes in you know, drawing imagined, often precarious lines of connection across and between them. Um, and I think something that I think is more interesting and that Hurston I think actually is always doing is, is kind of working in spite of or outside of or, or redefining those very terms. So like a, a disciplinarity, right? So it's actually 
not about um, regulation or control in that sense of the discipline or about the institutionalization of knowledge and a value system, which is the other kind of institutionality in, in terms of the university or the school, but actually about like pointing out kind of the futility of those categories and those value systems while still doing a different kind of work or methodology or practice. Like she would still be doing the kind of work she would be doing, even if it doesn't need to be called anthropology, right? In order for her to do that, that, that kind of work or an essay, we keep going back to how it feels to be colored, but an essay like how it feels to be colored to me, it's kind of, it, it exists on its own and does the same kind of work, even if we don't think about it as, you know, performance theory and whatever else, you know? Um, so I think it's, it's, you're just helping me to think through why I, I always bristle at that term, even as I readily summon it to describe the kind of work. Um, and also like at that time period, the disciplines were like kind of up for grabs and they weren't the same as we think of them now, right? So I think it's, it's tricky to call her that when they was all kind of a mess. When you want to understand her power, I always think of the bag of marbles at the end of the essay. Yeah. I yeah, mean, I don't have a word. I just oh. yeah, and the shards of glass. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It it, yeah. it, it, it uh, it's evocative of a lot of things at the same time, especially why we do what we're doing. Yeah, each of us. That's all I can say. The bag of marbles. I mean, I yeah. just and the sense. What I wanted to say. What also in this moment, why I start spoke is the sense of play. Yeah. It also told me something when I read that. I think that was the first piece of Hurston I ever got. And ending with the bag of marbles, when I was so self-conscious about everything and wanting to be an artist, sitting at Harvard and wanting to be an artist, and still there's no Black women. There's like one or two Black women from the college after all these decades who were full-time artists. Most of us just weren't going to do that. So many loans, so many family members, so many reasons. I have guilt <laughs> sometimes. Uh, anyway, a bag of marbles, though. Yeah. There's some, she always, you know, gives us something, a space. And uh, anyway, I just had to say that. I had to throw that image out. I love that. I just wanted to go back to what uh, you were saying, Dr. Womack, that she, you know, she didn't need to be an anthropologist to do the, the kind of work that she did. And I think you know, one, of the, one of the moments going on right now that brought us to even doing this panel was this kind of, or is this what we're seeing now, this reclamation of, of Zora Neale Hurston in, in anthropology and really um, anthropologist saying she was an anthropologist, she was a folklorist, and those kinds of things actually influenced her literary work. Um, the research that she did is what influenced her literary work. I think about um, in uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, she talks about the, um, she, she writes, uh, I think Janie, I think it's Janie that says, uh, there are other there may be places out in the ocean where black people are empowered, you know, which, you know, reference to Haiti, um, where she was, where she did her, where she did some field work. So I, I think, I think that question of, 
of interdisciplinarity kind of breaks apart when we start talking about Zora Neale Hurston because she did she did what she wanted. She did everything. She did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And she kind of just made her, she made Hurston studies, I don't know. <laughs> I think she was super. I think she was super interested in in how to tell black stories, mm. how to tell black diasporic studies, and and wanted to do that however she could do it. Mm. It didn't matter. Mm. It didn't matter what tools. I think mm. Autumn spoke to that with the with the with the use of the term a disciplinarity. Um, but I don't, I think, I think she would just be all frustrated with us trying to put her in any of these boxes. <laughs> um, and, and, and I will say as it pertains to my work as an anthropologist and, and whether or not I feel any sort of sense of interdisciplinarity, um, I mean, definitely, I feel like I'm, I feel like I've, you know, I've followed her in the sense that I want to do, I want to do Black studies, and I want to do it however I can do it. I found anthropology or ethnography, the methodologies of anthropology to be the way I needed to do Black studies. Um, and so I claim her as an anthropologist because I need her to be mm -hmm. recognized as having done that work that was not being done and needed to be done in a way that was loving and caring at a time when few were. Um, loving and caring towards Black folk, right? Which is very important to Zorno Hurston's work. Mm. So, yeah, that's, but I don't think, I wouldn't, I mean, I know we say that she's interdisciplinary because she's using, so, you know, pulling from all these different disciplinary work, ways of doing work, but <clears throat> I think it, it falls flat in the same way that that Autumn was talking about. And mm. it just doesn't, it doesn't, you know, she won't be in a box. She, mm -mm. <laughs> mm. even if that box is supposed to be expansive. Mm. There's a bit of um, lovely brilliance, I think, Roche, in the very first line you used, she wanted to tell Black stories. Um, and as a person who, I don't mind the, the way in which a kind of disciplinary specificity, literary studies, for example, has encouraged me to, like, I love paying attention to the way in which Hurston's, um, Hurston had such skillfulness across various genres that you read the opening of Their Eyes Are Watching God, Ships of the Distance Carry Every Man's Wish on Board. And then she goes on to talk about the women and the way in which the women's vision doesn't need the, 
doesn't need to be on the ship, that it, it, it manifests somewhere else. She's invoking in, in any number of ways. She, she might be invoking, thinking about the transatlantic slave trade. She's also invoking a kind of rhetorical tradition of the Odyssey, both the Odyssey as a journey, but also the Odyssey in particular as a literary work. And so her, her skillfulness in genres like plays and the sonic work and the visual work and spiritual rituals and interviews and fiction and nonfiction and dance, um, I, I am I'm grateful to appreciate her multi-genre-ness and I love then what Rishé said, which I think might be the way to think about what she was trying to do, was to try and tell Black stories and needed all those genres to tell Black stories. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not interested in being an advocate for literary studies, whether it's a particular English department or for anything in the academy. My, what is my work? My work is to try to pursue the questions that help me try to live and manifest a decent life. And disciplinarity is not part of my work. Uh, even if I'm like, I hear Rishay saying, even if I'm drawing from disciplinarity, what is my work? What I've learned from Black women thinkers, but in particular from Hurston, is be clear about your work and then try to do it. Grab whatever you need to grab to try to help you do your work as well as you can. Period. I, at the end point, period. <laughs> period. I think, yeah, um, there's a way in which, or not a way, I think the way, whatever, whatever you want to say, whatever pronoun you want to use, whatever. Um, there is no way to study Black life without being a disciplinarian. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and I think that so much about Blackness, Black people escapes definition, escapes capture, even as it is captured. Um, and that kind of, um, that paradox really hits me at times when I think about being an anthropologist. I think about how literally parts of me literally recoil um, thinking about the discipline and its history and the ways that I, as a Black queer woman and am called into it and prop it up like my presence right actually continues the discipline um, and so I don't really introduce myself as an anthropologist because of that <laughs> but um, I think there there is something that you all have just been saying about the way to study Black life requires us to grab at all of these different methodologies all of these different tools and I. I think that that helps bring value to the academy, um, but also like what what value should be there. Uh, we have 10 minutes left, nine minutes now. So we wanted to open up to if there are any audience questions. We're so sorry we don't really give y'all enough time to ask questions. But if we have one or two questions, we will take those um, and we will say goodbye to our lovely panelists. Um, but this has just really been such a joy and a pleasure to sit and listen to you all and learn with you all. So, yes. Do we have any questions from the audience? I did not receive any personally. So, Alyssa, did you receive any? No, we don't have any in the Q&A as well. I think it's just, yeah, people have just been listening and enjoying. 
and really appreciating. I, I certainly know that I was. <laughs> I wonder too, because um, I also think about like how black studies can't even really be a way to study black people. Um, and I know that can be kind of a touchy subject, right? How even the discipline black studies um, as an interdisciplinary discipline, right? Doesn't really have, it's not really expansive enough in my opinion to really capture or talk about all of black experience, right? With the different debates on how we, we discuss black queer people, right? How we discuss black trans people, how we talk about black women and black children within black studies. So, I think this is, Zora serves as a model to think about how do we have all of those different conversations without investments in disciplines, in departments, um, in places that really serve as emblems of, or emblems of power. Um, yeah, I think that's all I have to say. <laughs> we are really just okay. thrilled to have, oh. oh. I, I just wanted to say, I just think that focus on your work is, <laughs> focus on your work, focus on what it is that you want to do is a wonderful way to kind of sum up the conversation um, that we've had here. I know that it's something that Brendan and I talk about, um, which is we're focused on what it is that we're trying to do um, and what we're trying to get out of this degree as PhD students. Um, and we hope that others do the same, do the same. What is your work and focus on it? So yes, yeah, so just to, to wrap up, we are just so thrilled to have all of you here, these four scholars, Zora enthusiasts, um, here to discuss Hurston, um, how she's been taken up in this moment and what that signals. Brennan and I, were super, we are super, super happy, uh, delighted that everyone we asked to be a part of the roundtable, actually agreed to participate. So thank you so much. Um, it's, it's really allowed us to have this conversation where we have people coming from the text and the visual and the sonic and the cosmic we got into and the ethnographic. And I learned so much about, you know, generative engagement and, and producing ideas in community. I think the uh, critical ambivalence, I'm sure we'll all be thinking about that. So thank you all so much. And I want to thank you all for bringing all of your brilliance, your shine to this conversation. Um, and I just always get happy to have conversations with other Black people about Black shit. But um, anyway, we would like to thank Columbia Anthropology and University Life for sponsoring this event. And I'd personally like to thank Alyssa for all of her labor in coordinating, sending emails, pulling shit together, pulling Zoom together. Thank you so much for your labor. And so I just wanted to clap, clap, clap. Thank you. Doing all this while you're also in Martinique. So truly appreciative. Um, if you are new to Zora's Daughters, right, is the podcast. We would love to have you listen and be in contact with us. Um, you can find out more information about the podcast at zorasdaughters.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Zora's Daughters and on Twitter at Zora's underscore daughters. And last but not least, I hope that we all hold each other in ourselves and our hearts um, and that we remember that we have to take care of ourselves and each other during this time.